Hello, darling listeners, and welcome to the Atypical Behavior Analyst, your place in space to hear conversational information about the science of behavior analysis. I am your host, Kelly, and welcome to episode 30. But before we jump into the good stuff, let's go over some quick housekeeping. First off, we are ACE approved, so if you are listening for continuing education units, jot down the two keywords you'll hear interspersed during the talk, and then take those over to our website, atypicalba.com, where you can purchase CEUs. And take a minute to cruise around the site where you'll find additional resources and more information about each of our guests. Next, if you'd like to stay up to date with upcoming talks and live events, you can find, subscribe, and chat with us on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Our live events are a fantastic time to hang out, learn, and interact directly with us and our guests. And you can also reach out and say hi on social media. We'd love to connect with our listeners. Lastly, stay tuned after the talk for a preview clip from episode 31. And now, what you've been waiting for. Episode 30 is our live talk with Dr. Jeannie Golden. You'll notice that she uses the term aberrant behavior during the talk, but due to some feedback we actually got from listeners, the term challenging has been used on the podcast instead. So see, feedback does matter. So in this amazing talk, Jeannie addresses ways for behavior analysts to discover these setting events, distal antecedents, and establishing operations that can mask hidden trauma, and how we can provide more effective treatments. So grab your beverage of choice, adjust your volume, and dial in to episode 30, Removing the Mask Hiding Trauma, Discovering and Altering the Functions of Challenging Behavior with Dr. Jeannie Golden. Okay, well, it looks like our waiting room has slowed down. So this is my formal welcome to, hello, it's Friday. (laughs) Happy Friday. It's the Atypical Behavior Analyst and Dr. Jeannie Golden. And I am so excited. Um, This is something I've looked forward to. I first heard Dr. Golden talk 2008, maybe. I know it's been a long time ago. Um, If I remember correctly, it was either in Chicago or San Diego. And I just fell in love with the story and kept wanting to hear more and really just appreciated the way that um, she spoke about behavior and emotions and these complex contingencies that can that happen and develop and and get shaped up over time and different ways to handle it. Um, and as I've grown in my own career, I've really learned, you know, when we talk least intrusive, you know, it, it's not just as simple as like, what kind of prompt are you going to use? Like we're looking at medication administration, we're looking at behavioral interventions, and there's so much that goes on. And a lot of times if a person is, you know, neurotypical, or maybe doesn't have a diagnosis right away, that can affect things. Or if they do have a diagnosis, you know, there's a lot of stigma that comes with it. So yeah, um, I am just like, I said, beside myself for this. Um, it's going to be an amazing talk. And to kind of just get started, uh, Jeannie, if you could just give us a little bit of background about yourself, and then I will let you jump into your presentation and we'll go from there. Okay. Thank you so much, first of all, Kelly, for giving me a platform to talk about my favorite topic to increase awareness of, and also to my favorite audience, which is behavior analysts, because I feel like we have so much to offer this particular topic, but a lot of people are not necessarily involved. Um, Just to tell you a little bit about myself, I have a PhD in school psychology from Florida State University, where I worked with John Bailey and Joe Torgson. 
And um, I have been teaching at ECU, East Carolina University, for 40 years. And I teach in the pediatric school psychology program there. And I teach courses for um, in applied behavior analysis for my students to become board certified behavior analysts. I've had a school-based mental health grant for 10 years where um, my students, graduate students go into the school and they actually um, do counseling during the school day in a county that is very rural, very impoverished. And I was literally the only psychologist there and I would um, supervise the students and sign off on their notes. And many of the students had anxiety, depression, suicide ideation, cutting. And um, I found that a lot of times these students didn't really have these real psychiatric diagnoses. They just had overwhelming uh, life circumstances and trauma. And um, when I did my dissertation, I worked with a group of students who were in trouble with the law, who were always getting, you know, suspended and, and expelled from school. And the principal said to me, you don't want these kids in your class. These are the bad actors. And I said, those are the kids I want in my class. And the first day of class, I closed the door and I looked up at them because most of them were male and most of them were bigger than me. And I said, in my class, Nobody goes to the office. And I kept that promise. And a lot of times what that's all about is that students who are experiencing trauma exhibit aberrant behavior. And if we respond with harsh discipline, that's the worst thing you can do. So I used a lot of my behavioral skills and my psychology skills um, to interact with these students in a different way. And I have just... Um, I'm finishing a book and it's called Trauma, the Invisible Elephant Underlying Challenging Behavior with one of my doctoral students, Daniel Webb, and with a colleague of mine, Paula Flanders. So that's a little brief little introduction about me. Um, and I think that it is very timely to be talking about removing the mask because trauma is a topic that professionals, researchers, practitioners are finally talking about. Maybe the pandemic increased awareness because it brought trauma closer to all of us, but trauma has always been a problem for many of the children and adults we serve. And too often it has been masked by aberrant behavior, often blocking our ability to see it and to respond with compassion. So I'm trying to advance my slide here. Hold on one sec, there we go. So I have a couple of questions for you all. Do you believe that there are hidden factors not directly observable removed from the current environment that underline the aberrant behavior of some of your clients? So Kelly's gonna send that poll out to you. So if you would answer that question. And often I think as behavior analysts, we see um, behavior that seems to occur out of the blue that you know there's this really um, challenging, drastic behavior that occurs and um, there are immediate um, there don't seem to be any immediate triggers. And it seems like the person goes from zero to 100. Well, a lot of times I feel like what that is, is that people are experiencing setting events 
or what we might call slow triggers or distal antecedents. And so these might be witnessing the shooting of our own family member, days without food, clean clothes, or a place to live, someone in the home beating you when their voice is raised, a parent who is drunk or abusing substances. Um, so now in the immediate environment, a seemingly neutral stimulus, a raised voice, um, a demand, a loud noise, even a gentle touch elicits a classically conditioned automatic physiological survival response, causing the individual to become aggressive, fight, to elope, flight, or to appear non-compliant, freeze. And often these responses become operantly conditioned because they get reinforced by access to attention or items or by escape within the current environment. So I think, I believe that we really do need to recognize these um, distal antecedents. So what is the um, response to the poll, the question, Kelly? Yeah, one, I love that term distal antecedent. I'm, I'm cluing in on that one for a bit. Um, I really like that. So it looks like most people, um, yes, with certainty, some with some doubt, and then one not sure. Okay, yeah. great. So I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that people are more open to that idea. Okay, so now we're um, going to the second poll question. Let's see if I can advance my slide here. Do you believe that the learning histories, establishing operations, discriminative stimuli, reinforcers of some of your clients underlie their aberrant behavior? So when we talk about the role of learning history, often our clients are replicating chaos that they are experienced or have experienced in their past. And they are mirroring what they are feeling right now. I like to think of it as their feelings become establishing operations because in the past, and normally we don't think about establishing operations as something that has occurred in, you know, in the distant past. We think about establishing operation as a, as a current state. But when somebody has a learning history where they've experienced severe negative types of events and aversive situations, oftentimes those establishing operations manifest as feelings in the current environment. So when they feel powerless, what they do is they try to reach for power. They try to gain power and power becomes more of a reinforcer. When they feel out of control, they want to control the situation. When they feel hurt or disappointed, they may want to hurt or disappoint others. And if they feel pain or injury, they may actually inflict pain and injury on others. In fact, you may have heard of a reinforcer called signs of damage, where what is reinforcing to the individual is to see the bruises or the broken bones or the blood or the destroyed um, you know, materials or you know, the things in the environment. And that is actually the reinforcer for their behavior. And when somebody has experienced chaos, often it's reinforcing to recreate the chaos, or it might be that they want 
an extreme amount of structure in their life. So let's see what the response to that poll was. Okay, great. So it, it seems that you all are right with me about um, how trauma and past experiences can actually be um, impinging on current behavior. Okay, so the third poll question, do you believe that you have the tools to identify these hidden factors, even though they are not directly observable in the present environment? So that is the third poll question. This is a very humbling question. <laughs> because yeah, while I've, you know, seen a lot of things and read a lot and experienced, it's, mm, I know for me, it's, I, I have some tools, um, but every human's different. Okay, so this is the way I look at it. Um, I teach that behavior analysts are private investigators, okay? This is what they are. When they have to discover or figure out what is the function of behavior, they have to investigate. And how do we do that? We do record reviews, we do interviews of people that are in the lives of our clients, we use checklists, we observe in multiple environments, natural settings. And so if we can use these tools to do a functional assessment on, let's say, self-injurious behavior or on academic refusal, why can't we use these tools to find out what the student has been deprived of in their past? What are their triggers? And what are those setting events and distal antecedents that are affecting their behavior? And another really important question is, do the students have the skills to handle their emotional reactions? Because these are gonna be some strong emotional reactions based on the aversiveness of their past experience. And so those are the four, I think, most important questions that we have to ask ourselves when we're doing a functional behavioral assessment of aberrant behavior for someone who may have experienced trauma. And then, of course, we always want to know, what has the student been asked to do? Does the student have the skills to do what they've been asked to do? Who are the people are putting the demands on the student? And are they likely to respond to aberrant behavior, the people who are putting the demands, by giving the student access or escape? And are they likely to provide non-contingent reinforcement or a reinforcement contingent on appropriate behavior? So these are all things that we have to ask ourselves. And remember the matching law. If the demand is too high and the reinforcement is too low, then a person is going to react. Um, they're not going to want to uh, you know, cooperate with the, the demand. But so what we really have to do is we have to increase the amount of reinforcement and lower the amount of demand. Okay, so let's see what the result of this poll was. Okay, so this is really different. So it changed a lot. So as Kelly was saying, it's a humbling, it's, you know, it's a humbling kind of question. And I believe a lot of behavior analysts may not feel like they're equipped to do these things. But if you remember what I've been telling you, that um, behavior analysts um, have the tools through record reviews, interviews, checklists, observations. We need to use those to come in contact with 
distal antecedents. And we need to not be afraid to look at things that aren't in the immediate environment. And I think that's one of the most important things that we need to um, do. Okay. So and, real quick, before yes, we go into no. this one, um, someone brought up a really good point in the chat. And I think this goes into being an investigator is a lot of times when you're working in like foster care systems or um, state supported living centers, residential facilities, you may not know the background, Um, you know, hey, this person kind of just got dropped off and we don't know their history or they're they're not going to talk about it. And so what are, you know, with that kind of lack of information, you really have to hone your skills more on like, okay, so I need to observe a lot of the environment to see if there are those triggers, the immediate things that are setting them off. And then maybe we build backwards from there. Uh, Yes. And a lot of times it's really, really interesting, but you can assess somebody's learning history and kind of predict some of their experiences based on their reactions in the immediate environment, if you're a very careful observer. And a little bit later, I'm going to talk about a personal story about my own daughter who was in foster care. And I didn't really have a great deal about her history, but I did know a few things and figured out a lot of things based on the little bit I did know. But if you even make a relationship, I think relationships with the significant people in their lives, one of the things that I always did was I tried to be in constant contact. And you know, it might not be what happened when they were um, with their birth parent. It might be what's happening, you know, the night before with the foster parent or what happened on the bus. Um, you know, so there's a lot of things that may not be in the media environment that may not go all the way back to the, um, you know, the, the actual source of the trauma, but we can get a lot of clues in the home environment and in, in environments that occur prior to the child stepping into the classroom. I think that's a really important part of it. But I'll talk more about that a little bit later um, when I talk about my foster child. Okay, and then the fourth poll question, do you believe that it is is appropriate or helpful for behavior analysts to identify these hidden factors, even though they are not directly observable in the present environment. So because this is an audio medium afterwards, um, I found it really interesting. There were so many people were slamming that button real fast. So yeah, this is an (laughs) interesting one. And what are you coming up with as far as the... Okay. Let me give you like five more seconds, people. Three two, one, and let's check this out. Okay. So again, people are pretty certain that um, this is helpful or something that we definitely need to do. And so I'm really glad that you're with me on this. And on my next slide, I talk about um, why not stick to um, you know, present antecedents when analyzing or observable antecedents when analyzing aberrant behavior. Because 
what we see is only the tip of the iceberg. And I love this visual because very often what we're seeing in terms of aberrant behavior and problems that the child is exhibiting is only the tip. And there's so much more underlying. It's so much deeper than what we realize. And we really need to get to that place that we can um, you know, have contact with that other information. So um, one of the things that is important for us to realize, okay, is that challenging behavior is a form of communication. And I think we always know that when we do a typical functional behavioral assessment, like we look at, you know, what is the need? Is it attention, access to attention, a preferred item? Is it escape from an aversive task or an unpleasant person or an aversive situation? Is it self-stimulation? But when we're looking at trauma, we also want to look at what are the basic needs? And one of the biggest needs people have is for safety. And even if children are safe in the current environment, they often don't feel safe. And the reason they don't feel safe is because their brain actually gets altered by trauma and they are in a constant state of vigilance and can be easily triggered into fight flight or freeze. So it's a very different kind of dynamic. So we have to add that to our assessment. And so this brings me to um, the story about my foster daughter. Um, I got married very late in life. And when I married my husband, I had never had children, never had a family. And I was so excited to to finally settle down and have kids. And my husband, he was a veterinarian who was getting ready to retire. He had grown children who were married, getting ready to have grandchildren. So we were sort of at different points in our lives. So we decided to compromise and become foster parents. So we went through the 30 hours of training and the escape route and the uh, fire extinguisher telling all the details of our past um, childhoods and our parenting techniques and our relationship. And, you know, luckily you don't have to do that, or maybe you should have to do that when you have a biological child. But finally, after all of this, and here he was an experienced father, and I was an expert in behavior management, and we had to go through all this training. But anyway, finally the day came and they had a little girl for us. She kind of looked like this little girl. She had a ponytail sticking up on the top of her head. She um, had a little plastic bag, you know how foster children often come with a plastic bag with all their items and the social worker dropped her off on Friday afternoon and said, have a nice weekend her medications are in the bag we'll see you on Monday. Well, my husband and I looked at each other, medications, nobody said anything about medications. Well, in within five minutes, this little girl was kicking, biting, screaming, throwing things, cursing, spitting, and knocking things off the shelves and came over to my husband and said, boy, you better do what I tell you to do or I'm going to beat your butt. So my husband, who's this 
you know, sensitive man getting ready to retire and enjoy grandchildren. He starts freaking out, looking through the plastic bag saying, honey, I can't find the medications. I can't find the medications. And I say, relax, honey, we don't need medications. I've got this. I'm a behavioral psychologist. So um, we started on Friday afternoon. Um, well, first of all, let me tell you what the medications were. She was on um, ADHD medication, an antipsychotic and an antidepressant. So how this little girl could be have three psychiatric diagnoses, be on three medications and still be completely out of control. And um, so we started on Friday afternoon doing everything that I had been teaching staff and parents and teachers and students and, you know, trying to get people to do for years in my profession. We did these things with this little girl. And so that was Friday afternoon. We did it all weekend. In fact, we were exhausted by the time Monday came around. She had been kicked out of daycare centers. She'd been in and out of foster homes where they had her for a little while. And then they brought her back and said, you know, we just can't handle her. But Monday morning, she was going to a new environment, which was kindergarten. And she walks into kindergarten and she says to me, mommy, let's show the teacher that thing where you tell me what to do and I do it. Well, what we had been doing all weekend was compliance training, but she thought we were just having fun because the reinforcers that we used were not good job. I like the way you're doing what we asked you to do. But when she would walk into our house, we would say, announcing the greatest gymnast that ever walked the face of the earth. Here she is. And she's going to do a cartwheel. And then we'd go, yay. And so the next time she walked into our house, instead of kicking, biting, screaming, throwing things, she'd walk in like, like this, because she's anticipating all this excitement from us. And, you know, she thought she had died and gone to heaven. And so, um, you know, my husband uh, was Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. He had biceps to spare and used antlers and all of his decorating. And I know you think I'm crazy at this point, but that's the kind of reinforcement it took to get this little girl to um, be compliant and to respond. And what she was trying to do in the environment, you know, you could just, you could guess from her behavior, but we did know that she had an abusive and a neglectful environment. And um, it, her, her mother had brought her to a psychiatrist. And every time she brought her to the psychiatrist, um, the psychiatrist, um, didn't really know what to do about her behavior, didn't know what to tell the mother to do. And in fact, not only did the child exhibit all those behaviors, but the mother said at home, she was breaking windows and setting fires and allegedly uh, sexually abusing her brothers. And so the psychiatrist just kept giving medication and medication and medication, diagnosis after diagnosis. And finally, the mother came in and said, you know, she's destroying my home. You have to put her in a psychiatric hospital. Luckily, the psychiatrist got suspicious and called social services. Well, at this point, 
What do social services have to do? They have to investigate in the home environment. So what they found out when they investigated in the home environment was that my daughter was not sexually molesting her brother. She was not breaking, well, she was breaking windows and setting fires, but she was trying to help her brothers by, you know, changing their diapers, bathing them, clothing them, feeding them any food she could grab out of the freezer or whatever. And her mother was locking herself in the bedroom and she was, you know, abusing drugs and having sexual partners. And so what did my daughter need to do to get her to come out of the bedroom? Well, she had to set fires and break windows. She couldn't have a normal tantrum. Okay. So where's the medical model? They kept looking for what is wrong with this child? What is her disease or disorder? And they kept coming up with one diagnosis after another. The behavioral model says, what's going on in this environment? And um, whereas the medical model did a clinical interview, which only gives you the perspective of the parent or whoever it is you're interviewing, but in observing, we found a lot more information about what was really going on and family history, which looks for, you know, is there some kind of genetic or, you know, biochemical kind of component? Reinforcement history tells us, what has she been reinforced for? Well, she'd only been reinforced for aberrant behavior because the only time her mother got excited and gave her any emotional intensity and any attention at all was when she broke windows and set fires. And when she was doing all that great stuff, trying to take care of her brothers, she didn't get any reinforcement from her mother at all. So we learned that her reinforcement history was that she got reinforced for aberrant behavior, but the form of reinforcement was highly intensive, which is why we had to match the intensity of that reinforcement by getting super excited for appropriate behavior. If we didn't get super excited for appropriate behavior, it never would have competed with the emotional intensity she got for inappropriate behavior. And that's what changed her behavior. And these are basically the reinforcers that we use attention and not just you know attention but eye contact physical contact close proximity oh, how important that is to a child whose parent is neglectful and who doesn't come near them except when they act um, with this aberrant behavior um, we used a lot of excitement and intensity and we taught her that to get control and power in our household she had to be compliant that's all she had to do. She had to do what we asked her to do. And she had plenty of control and power. And then, of course, um, you know, movement, activity, access to preferred people, place and items and escape, but escape through appropriate behavior rather than aberrant behavior. Now, that would be a nice end to the story if we didn't realize that although a applied behavior analysis was so important in helping us to get her behavior under control, but she started to exhibit other behaviors that indicated a lack of attachment. Now, I am familiar with attachment 
you know, reactive attachment disorder. And I'm glad at least it's called reactive because it is reaction to the environment, which is at least a little better than just saying what's wrong with the child. But I didn't want to give her another diagnosis. You know, I got rid of all three of those diagnoses because we never found the medication, never gave it to her. She went to school. She was fine. Nobody ever said anything about even having that she had ADHD, she really had more than hyperactivity. She really had, um, you know, hypervigilance and hyperarousal because of her trauma, but she did not have hyperactivity. And I think that that's how a lot of these kids get misdiagnosed. So anyway, we started to see these behaviors. And so I really want to look at these behaviors not as a diagnosis, a symptom of a diagnosis, but as a behaviorist, I want to say, where did these behaviors come from? How did this happen? And it just so happens that when I first um, got my daughter as a foster child, I saw Glenn Latham, which I'm sure you are familiar with, Glenn Latham, who wrote The Power of Positive Parenting. And he had tons of foster children that he did great things with. And he said, if the village raises your child, you will raise a psychopath in response to Hillary Clinton saying it takes a village to raise a child. Now, in all fairness to Hillary Clinton, what she meant by that is that the village supports and reports back to the parent. But what happens in foster care is that children get um, do not get held responsible in a reciprocal relationship. Everybody just wants to give to them without any accountability. And so they might be, for example, in a visit with their mother and they might you know, yell at their mother and hit their brothers. And then a social worker might pick them up and say, oh, you look sad, let me buy you ice cream. Or they might have a tantrum in daycare. And then the foster parent picks them up and says, let me take you to get a movie. And so what happens is because people don't communicate and there's not one central person who knows exactly what's going on with this child, then the child learns some very unfortunate kind of behaviors. They learn and they believe that they themselves are responsible for their own behavior. So what have they learned in their learning history? That if familiar adults abuse, neglect, and ultimately abandon them, right? Because that's what her birth mother did. So she, they often learn to rely on themselves, you know, they, and this was what my daughter did. And this is what a symptom or a characteristic of, of reactive attachment disorder is that the child can act very charming and people, I mean, I used to do talks for foster parents and I had a, you know, my daughter would talk to somebody and say, oh, I love your necklace. And they would end up giving her the necklace, you know, poor little foster child admired my necklace. Let me give it to her. Well, one of the parents that I did a talk for said her 16 year old son, somebody actually gave him a car. I mean, he was so charming that the and, and you know, convincing that the stranger and I call these naive adults wanted to give him a car. OK, so if charm doesn't work with these kids because they have to survive on their own. You know, they really don't have somebody who is 
caring and consistent and that they can count on, that they can trust. So they really try to make it on their own, so to speak. So why did, so how do they do that? They, you know, charm people, but if that doesn't work, they become extremely coercive. So like I was getting ready to do a talk for a group of foster parents and I had my daughter with me and we were waiting to do the talk and she has the biggest, hugest tantrum in the world to get something she wants. Okay. But despite those circumstances, I did not give in and give her what she wanted, but all of her foster parents and she had a lot of them always did. And they, and she would say to me, mom, my other foster parents, they would buy me whatever I want. They would let me stay up as late as I want. They would, and you know, they basically created a monster and then had to give her back. So I would say, well, sorry, honey, but you know, you're now living with a behavioral psychologist. So you're not going to get, you know, you're not going to always get the things that you want, especially, you know, when you act that way. And so you know, that's what really happens to these children, strangers, naive adults give without reciprocity or accountability. So that's why they seem like they're detached. And they, you know, like when we would go to pick our daughter up from from daycare, a lot of times she would ignore us and, and just, you know, be like, go away. And the strangers who were giving her all this extra attention, she preferred that. And we'd go to the beach and, you know, I'd want to, you know, play in the water, build a sandcastle. She wanted to take off with every Tom, Dick and Harry that was on the beach. But this is what they learn from their learning history. It's not a disease or disorder. It's not another diagnosis that they need to be given. So traumatized youth, they often develop these coping um, survival mechanisms. So, you know, just like the, you know, the fight, angry, aggressive, and violent behavior. They often also exhibit shallow or deficient emotions. You know, it, there was a period of time with my daughter where it was really, really scary because it was like she had a blankness about her. And when something sad would happen, I would never see sadness on her face. Like we'd be watching a really sad movie and I'd start crying and she'd be like, mom, what are you crying about? And, um, you know, all she seemed to be able to exhibit was happy if she got what she wanted, angry if she didn't get what she wanted. And so, you know, and then a lot of times to survive, children become non-compliant, oppositional or defiant because that's the only way they can control their situation. They have cognitive distortions where they believe, you know, that they can't trust anyone, that they're bad, that, you know, life is, is hopeless, you know. And the other thing that's really hard to deal with is sort of more um, sort of covert behaviors like stealing, lying, and cheating. It's a lot harder to catch these behaviors. Um, I remember um, when my daughter, I came to her fourth grade party at the end of the year and the teaching assistant said, oh, I have so enjoyed your daughter's um, stories about her horseback riding and her outfits and her ribbons. And, you know, my draw dropped because I had never, she had never gone on a horse, but she was so good at telling these tales 
And, um, you know, she got so much reinforcement for these lies from naive adults. How do you compete with that? And, you know, when she was stealing, it was like, um, I, I, this person gave it to me when she was cheating. It was like, well, I was just trying to help this person. And so there are a lot of covert behaviors that happen that it's a little harder to use typical behavior management strategies for. The other thing that I think is really important, and again, even if we don't know for certain a child's history, often these are things that I have found to be very common among children who are in foster care and also the children who are in this rural, um, you know, low income county many of them were the adults in the household. They were responsible for their younger siblings or their cousins. And so to come from that environment into a school environment where people are ordering them around and telling them what they need to do really doesn't sit right with these kids. And often these kids have sophisticated survival skills for tough situations. I mean, they have to deal with bullies and gangs in the street. But when they, and so they often have high level social skills, but they're severely lacking in emotional skills. And unfortunately, we lump those two together. Like when we do a psychological assessment, we talk about socio um, emotional or socio psychological level of functioning. And the thing is that you know, these kids could be very sophisticated, like she was like a teenager. I mean, she was exposed to sexual things. She was um, taking care of her brothers. So socially, she had a very high level of skill. But emote and people would say to me, oh, your daughter is so mature. And I would, you know, again, naive adults. No, she isn't. She's not mature at all. If you don't give her what she wants, she can fall apart and have a tantrum like a two-year-old. So these kids are very often lacking in emotional skills. Why? Because their feelings have not been recognized, labeled, and acknowledged. And caring for their feelings and the feelings of others has not been modeled and reinforced. And besides that, which makes it really difficult in school, on-task behavior has not been modeled and reinforced. In a chaotic environment, nobody's reading to you, sitting down and teaching you numbers and letters and colors. Um, You know, you are seeing, um, you know, sex and you're seeing, you know, stealing and cheating. You're not getting the kinds of behaviors. And so a lot of that I can almost um, assume sometimes in children that have been in foster care. Another thing is the parental models. Harsh discipline and inconsistent parenting are two risk factors for oppositional defiant disorder and conduct disorder, okay? Well, again, I wonder if these kids really have oppositional defiant disorder or conduct disorder, or they are just modeling and learning from their parents' models um, and the harsh discipline and the inconsistent discipline that they're experiencing the symptoms of ODD and conduct disorder. So I don't like to even use that label. And then way back in the 80s, I remember um, Reed and Patterson talking about a coercive cycle that, that kids often observe. You see the two parents in the background. The one parent 
you know, the, the wife might ask the husband to do something and nag him about it. And finally he gets upset and he yells at her. And then, you know, she kind of backs off. And if she really persists and gets too, you know, nagging and too uh, persistent, he might even, you know, hit her or do something, you know, violent and aggressive. And that actually gets rewarded. You know, it gets um, negatively reinforced because it stops her from nagging. And then the husband, um, you know, learns that, you know, aggression works. Well, so does the kid learn that aggression works. And in the interaction between the parent and the child, if the, the child asks the parent something and the parent says, no, you can't have that. And then they ask again. And then, you know, the parent says, you know, no. And the child then starts to whine or, you know, tantrum or something. And then if the child gets really aberrant and aggressive and violent, well, then the parent might just say, well, okay, go ahead. And so that is the coercive cycle, which escalates aggressive behavior. Now, what I did with that with my daughter in the grocery store, um, you know, when kids see uh, candy and they want candy and she would ask me for candy. The first time she did, I said, no, you can't have any. And of course she had a big tantrum. We had to leave. She, you know, missed dessert, had to go to bed early, but none of that really affected her behavior. The next time we go to the grocery store, she asked me for a candy bar and I said, no. Well, she's thinking about, should I have a tantrum again? She's just thinking about it. Well, I caught her before she said another word. And I said, oh, sweetie, I am so happy. When I, when I said, no, you didn't whine, you didn't complain, you didn't ask me again, you didn't have a tantrum, I'm going to buy you that candy bar. Now, I didn't buy it every single time, but I intermittently reinforced her acceptance of no. And by doing that, she learned that unlike the coercive cycle, that with me, she could get what she wanted more often by being kind and saying, okay, mommy. And then when she was 16 and we went shopping for jeans and I said, you know, she wanted these jeans. I said, no, they're too tight. Can't have them. And we'd leave. And then we would, um, go out of the store. First of all, the clerk at the store would be amazed. I mean, here's a 16 year old girl and um, the uh, her mom says no. And she says, OK, mommy. <laughs> and so we walked out of the store and then I'd say, you know, sweetie, you were so nice about those jeans. I guess they're really not that tight. Let's go back and buy them. So whereas other people intermittently reinforced the tantrum, I intermittently reinforced acceptance of no. So what are some of the devastating effects of a lack of attachment? And a lack of attachment often occurs along with trauma. Well, a lot of these behaviors, I like to call immoral or unemotional behaviors. Like um, I mentioned lying, stealing, and cheating, the appearance of no guilt or remorse, the appearance of no performance, anxiety, or achievement motivation, and the appearance of no joy, pride, or sadness. Now, you notice I say the appearance because I don't know internally whether she felt guilt or remorse or performance anxiety. I don't know if she was experiencing joy, pride, or sadness, but I never saw these things. You know, my husband came home one day, he had gone to a, a baseball game with her and she had caught the winning fly that, you know, fly ball that got the other 
team out and she had, you know, hit a couple of the home runs to give her team points. And at the end, my husband was like, oh, sweetie, that was great. You did such a great job. And all she could say was that I, I look at this bruise on my knee. That's all she cared about. And that's another whole story about, you know, she got more reinforcement when she was sick or got hurt by being taken to the doctor. And that was more important to her than any kind of pride or joy for any kind of achievement. And so these kind of things, you can explain them all with learning history. Now, I had generated this list on my own. And then DF or APA comes out with, um, you know, the DSM in 2013, and it matched, this was conduct disorder with what they call callous and unemotional traits. And I was shocked because it matched exactly what I had found in my daughter. But again, did I want to give her another diagnosis, conduct disorder with callous and unemotional traits? No, I saw these symptoms of this disorder that I did not want to give her as behaviors that were learned. Okay, so I looked at the literature on antisocial youth with callous and unemotional traits and found out that they have more severe, aggressive, and persistent patterns of antisocial behavior, a greater risk to adult psychopathology, and they're less reactive to threatening and emotionally distressing stimuli. All right, friends, if you are listening for continuing education units, here is the first of your two keywords. Your first word is block, B-L-O-C-K. Trauma victims learn to block aversive emotions. Block. Well, um, it seemed like my daughter in her adolescence had antisocial behavior. I mean, she was frightening. I mean, sometimes at night when I would go to bed, I would sort of keep my eyes open and on the lookout because I was afraid of her. And um, we had a speaker come to ECU to talk about, um, you know, antisocial behavior. And I was like, that again, it sounded like my daughter, but he said, well, is she an adolescent? <laughs> it may be that this will go away after adolescence, but it's sort of like with kids with the kind of backgrounds that we've been talking about is sort of like adolescence on steroids, you know, so it was very, very scary to, you know, give her consequences at this point in her life. And any kind of, you know, consequence or punishment didn't seem to distress her or upset her. Okay. So I started looking at this in terms of, okay, what's going on or what happened in the past that may have brought this about. And I started looking at some environmental events as SDs that create establishing operations. So remember that establishing operations is the deprivation of stimuli um, in the environment that have reinforcing value that make the presentation of those stimuli more salient or stronger in their reinforcement value. 
So a lot of times kids that have not had food in the past, you know, they've been food deprived, they've been severely deprived of attention and pleasure and structure and excitement over, you know, good things that they did, then any of those things can become more reinforcing in the present environment. And again, I'm stretching the the definition of establishing operations to include in their early life. But we see this because children that have been deprived of food hoard food. Children that have been deprived of attention seek attention to an extreme and, you know, often seek structure, you know, they, they keep testing the limits and testing the limits so that you create structure to the point where some people end up in jail, which is the greatest level of structure in their lives. And then the other thing is an establishing operation can be the presentation of stimuli in the environment that have punishing effects like pain, anxiety, um, chaos, a task, a person or a place. Okay, these are are punishing um, stimuli and they make the removal of those stimuli more salient or stronger in their reinforcement value. Okay, so I think I believe that these things come from their learning history. So when I say that feelings can be establishing operations, I am saying that in the past, abuse and neglect caused feelings of pain, guilt, shame, sadness, and anxiety. So I believe that children have these normal emotions. And I believe my daughter had these normal emotions, okay? But in the present stimulus conditions associated with abuse or neglect also create that pain, guilt, shame, sadness and anxiety so that um, external trigger. So for example, even if I wasn't smiling, there were times when my daughter would say to me, mom, why aren't you smiling? Well, I think that that might've been an SD, an event that triggered a feeling. And then the establishing operation is that feeling of discomfort that makes the reinforcer more salient. In other words, getting rid of this feeling is more reinforcing because it was the event that triggered it was so um, aversive. So it becomes negatively reinforcing to block the feeling and make the negative feelings go away. I think one of the things I forgot to say in my introduction is that I had a private practice for many years and I worked with adult survivors of abuse and sexual abuse. And many of them were very numb. And when they talked about their abuse, they might say, um, oh yeah, my father raped me. Um, what do you think of this weather outside? You know, it was like they had no emotion associated with that event. 
And so I believe, again, that they were negatively reinforced for numbing that emotion. And that is a characteristic of people who have been abused. So why, um, or, or abuse, neglect, trauma, and loss in somebody's history, they get negatively reinforced from numbing or blocking the emotions associated with these aversive situations. Now, as a behavior analyst, I'm not too far out there talking about emotions and talking about how we get negatively reinforced for avoiding emotions because Hayes and Fryman both have talked about the experiential and emotional avoidance of anxiety. So, you know, the reason that people, you know, avoid certain things because those certain things create anxiety, but they also avoid the emotions that are associated with that anxiety. And Fryman has a great article where he says behavior analysts should study emotions because he feels like we have, again, so much to contribute and we can look at emotions in a different way. Um, we look at emotions as behaviors, you know, thoughts and feelings, according to Skinner, were our be behaviors. That's what Skinner said. But the problem was he talked about them being under the skin. So it's difficult to be in touch with them. And so maybe you can interview people and ask them, but a lot of times people will hide them or children don't have the cognitive ability to talk about those emotions. Um, but that should not stop us from taking this on as a challenge because we can look at those emotions as behaviors and look at the, you know, the, the impact and how we can change those behaviors. So I came up with a behavioral explanation of callous and unemotional traits. Refusing to talk about thoughts and feelings is negatively reinforced. It's, it's a form of avoidance. And acting out an aggressive behavior is negatively reinforced because you get to avoid tasks that you don't want to do. And acting out in aggressive behavior is positively reinforced because you get power and control in the environment. And on-task behavior has no reinforcement value at all because you have never had anyone in your past reinforce you for doing something. And that was my, my daughter's case. I mean, we had to reinforce on-task behavior like crazy to get her to do her schoolwork, to get her to practice piano, to get her to do anything that wasn't a pleasurable activity that she just wanted to do because she had not had that in her learning history. And, and again, I feel like I, I could see a lot of things that had happened in her environment that I didn't really know, but I could guess from her current behavior. Now, as far as identifying what the triggers are, that's going to be difficult, but you have to be a careful observer in the current environment. So a lot of times I hear behavior analysts say, oh, that behavior occurred out of the blue. I hate that. I hate out of the blue because 
maybe it occurred because of some internal response that you don't know about, but there has to be a triggering event. You know, there's the distal antecedents, but there's the, the current antecedent that is the trigger. And again, I encourage you as a private investigator to figure those things out, even if you don't have access to the history of that student. Now, what are the implications of all this for treatment? Well, one of the things that children who have been traumatized, who have attachment issues, who have conduct disorder, callous and unemotional traits, have to learn to emotionally connect, okay? It requires learning emotional behaviors, tolerating, coping with, getting comfort for negative emotions. I'm gonna tell you something really sad that happened to me. The wonderful man that I finally met and married late in life ended up with fourth stage cancer and died. And when that happened, I cried. I cried in front of my students when I taught. I cried in front of my friends. I was working on an article that I was dedicating to him. And um, I would meet with this person who was writing it with me. And some days I could write and some days all I could do was cry. And he'd say, Jeannie, I wish I could help you. And I said, you are helping me. You're letting me cry. You're with me in my crying and my sadness. Well, I was working on that school-based grant at the time. And I gained, I mean, I had empathy for the students I worked with, but I gained so much more empathy because I realized that they have these losses every day and they have to go to school the next day. And so what they have no reason to if experience their sadness and to be with their sadness. They have anger because anger covers up sadness. Anger makes you feel more powerful and in control. So why would you feel sadness? So a lot of times I hear behavior analysts say, oh, that behavior occurred out of the blue. I hate that. I hate out of the blue because maybe it occurred because of some internal response that you don't know about, but there has to be a triggering event. You know, there's the distal antecedents, but there's the the current antecedent that is the trigger. And again, I encourage you as a private investigator to figure those things out, even if you don't have access to the history of that student. Now, um, we need to focus on regulation of emotions. That's something, that's a skill. We need to put it in the IEP. We need to have children learn how to name emotions express emotions, regulate emotions, feel emotions. They need to be able to feel safe. We have to identify their triggers so we can help them to feel safe. Um, we have to be supportive. We have to get rid of harsh discipline and harsh reactions to them because that doesn't feel safe. And we have to have healthy, positive relationships where we fulfill their needs, create warm facial expressions, eye contact and touch, because the relationship trauma can only be healed relationally. Karen Purvis said that, and I love that. 
So other implement implications for treatment, we have to establish trust. How do we do that? We provide structure and we follow through with predictable consequences. Now, my daughter, <laughs> um, when she was five years old, she had this terrible therapist. She was in foster care and they had her in this therapy. And so I would go to this therapy with her. And the therapist asked her, who do you trust? And she pointed to me and she said, that mommy, that mommy right there. Because she had had a lot of mommies, right? And so I always said when I did presentations that the reason she trusted me was because I always followed through and I was very predictable with consequences, whether they be, you know, doing something really fun or saying, oh, sorry, honey, we can't do that because you didn't do this or your behavior was like this. You know, I was friendly about it, but I followed through. Never harsh, you know, always loving. And so I just guessed that. So now my daughter is an adult. She's my, uh, you know, adopted daughter. She's 29. She has two children of her own, an eight-year-old grandson of mine, a one-year-old granddaughter. She's a great mom. She has great kids. And I asked her, what did you mean when you were five years old um, and you said, you know, that mommy, that mommy there, why did you pick me? And she goes, mom, I don't remember that. <laughs> but if I had to guess, it was probably because I could always count on you. You always did what you said you were going to do. And so that's how we establish trust. That's the most important thing because the chaotic life is so, uh, it, it doesn't, uh, it doesn't help because it's, it's like, having PTSD where, you know, you don't know when, you, you know, you're going to get punished. You don't know when you're going to get reinforced. You don't know when good things are going to happen and bad things are going to happen. You don't know when there's going to be an explosion and your best friend's going to die. You know, that's why it's so important to have structure. You also need micro shaping. You know, you have to start very, very small. Remember the matching law, too much demand and too low of reinforcement it's not going to get done. You have to way increase the reinforcement, way lower the demand and micro shape. And doing that, you have to create tolerance and delay of gratification ability because the, that has not been taught to these kids. Whereas little babies get taught this by their parents when they're loving and they say, just a minute, honey, I'll be right there. You know, do this for a minute and mommy will come. That didn't happen. And they need empathy for what they've been through. They need validation that their feelings, and this is what this book we wrote is all about. It's about strategies and techniques that parents and teachers can use because too often in schools, what do we do? We kick kids out of school. We, we suspend them. And what does that say? We, don't, we can't handle you. We don't want you. You're not worth it. That's the worst thing that we can do. So attachment behaviors can be learned, but with great difficulty. Remember the, the um, critical period for learning? You know how you could learn a foreign language when you're little really quick. And now that I have so many college students can't learn a foreign language, it's, it's past the critical period. Well, that's where attachment is. It's a, there's a critical period, but now you can still learn to be attached. My daughter is finally attached to me, but it requires so much more repetition tons of high intensity reinforcement. And my daughter and I call it making up for lost time. 
So thank you. And if anybody has any questions, I'll be happy to answer. Oh man, that was, that was awesome. Um, thank you so much. I love listening to you. Um, and yeah, there's been a lot of really good things in the chat. So I want to hit that up. Um, again, the way that you explain things and it's this beautiful combination of, you know, what some people would start to go, oh, it's a little mentalist. It's maybe a little fluffy. No, 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 no. The breakdown of it is super behavioral. Like the appearance of joy. I hear a lot of times, oh, well, they feel guilty about that. Really? You can, you can get inside their brain and see what they're feeling. Well, it's just the way they look. Ah, okay. Let's talk about that then, because those are things that we can observe. And those are things that we can tack onto. Um, so one of the questions that popped up and I'm going to kind of go in the order that they came in, was talking about sensory functions with challenging behavior. And I think this kind of leads into with some of the adult learners where they may learn to engage in some really inappropriate, aberrant behaviors. Um, so what are, what are some ideas or thoughts or recommendations that you have when it's not quite as clean as like, oh, well, I just need to give more reinforcement over here, or give more attention over here. Instead, it's like, oh, no, like masochism. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it releases something um, it's, and, and yeah, that can be really intense. So what are, what are thoughts and well, recommendations gonna, on we that? We have to be very creative in our replacement behaviors. You know, we have to um, try to find things that are more adaptive and try to find things that are, you know, like, for example, Jessica Minahan talks about a girl who used to um, scratch her um, her wrist so badly when she would get anxious that she would cause bleeding. OK, and one of the reasons for that is because she was um, imagining that all these people were talking about her and saying negative things about her. And it was all this cognitive stuff going on in her head. And if you just gave her a break and let her do artwork, it didn't compete with the cognition in her head that was creating the anxiety. So what they did was they had her read on a tape recorder and read books for other people who, who were blind and they could listen to it. So, so they were helping someone. And at the same time, um, you know, she was helping someone and she was blocking out her cognitions. But for example, with those signs of damage, I think in that case, you have to prevent that reinforcer from ever occurring. So you have to be hyper vigilant. I think sometimes we really have to use surveillance. You know, we really have to be careful. Like one of the things that I did with my daughter was restrict what she could do. Like when she was in the phase where I was worried about her and she was exhibiting those callous and unemotional traits, I did not allow her to babysit for children. I never allowed her to babysit for children because I never knew what the risk might be. So I think sometimes we have to keep individuals in a protective environment. And she was angry at me a lot in adolescence because I didn't let her do a lot of things that were appropriate for her age, but I had to, to restrict those things. So for somebody who has, you know, sensory issues, you may just have to figure out what's another, like either protection 
for the other people. Like, for example, um, you know, staff may be wearing a vest. If you have somebody who, you know, um, likes to grab breasts and, and twist, and it's not something that you could easily ignore, you know, and not respond to. So, you know, in some ways, I think we sometimes have to think about protective kinds of devices and then distraction kinds of things, distract, try to find other kinds of things that may be um, of interest, you know, maybe something on a video, in a video, or, um, you know, maybe other kinds of materials, like, you know, think about like in a haunted house, all the ways they, they have you, you know, and have, you know, spaghetti for guts and, you know, things like that. So I think we have to be creative in replacement behaviors. We have to be protective and we have to use surveillance if somebody's going to hurt somebody. And we have to prevent them from getting that reinforcer from that inappropriate source. All right, here's the second of your two keywords. The second word is trust, T-R-U-S-T. Trust is an important part of building safe relationships. Trust. Thank you. I hope that, I think that answered the person's question. So feel free to pop it in the chat or if you want more information yeah, if, if on it that. Doesn't, if you want to be more specific, I can, yeah. yeah. But this then kind of goes into the next questions that came up. Um, I'm going to skip down one. So looking at um, behaviors that occur out of trauma. So those that then seek out going to the hospital or seeking out a uh, jail time, you know, that's a really tough thing. We've seen, you know, I had a resident um, at one point I was working with that had a diagnosis and I'm using air quotes here of PICA. No person just learned that if I wanted to get away from like the two to one staff who are always around me and I get no privacy, I'm going to go and just something I shouldn't. And then I get to go to the hospital and people leave me alone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that there's a lot, like, I love the, you know, discussion too, of, you know, it's the, the pipeline to prison of when you, we, there's this huge, I mean, it, it's not a correlation. It is there where you can see the data of if someone gets expelled from school or has these histories of suspension, they're more likely to end up in jail or prison because there's nothing else there. Yeah. Well, the, the medical issue with my daughter, I found myself as being the bad guy. Like she was in sports and she was always getting injured. Um, one night in gymnastics, she twisted her wrist and got out of gymnastics and wanted to come to dinner with us. Um, and, but she slung her book bag up on her back as she walked into the room. So I, you know, I learned pretty quickly that a lot of situations where naive adults would think that she was injured, she really wasn't. I've had coaches say, you need to take her for MRI on that knee, you know, only to find out that there wasn't anything wrong with her knee. So a lot of times I just had to be the bad guy. She had a, she had allergies and she got shots. And one time she had a reaction to the shot and they had to give her that, you know, that needle in the thigh and the 
the doctor's office said, don't be surprised if uh, she never wants to get her shot again. Well, we leave the office and she's like, when's my next allergy shot? So I've experienced that. And what you have to do is you have to be aware of it and you have to um, not allow it to work or function, you know, and that means it's very inconvenient. It's just like when you don't, when you, when somebody has a tantrum and you don't allow them to get what they want, it's the same principle. And my husband said to me one time, I hope our daughter doesn't have appendicitis because you won't believe her, you know? And so I had to do a lot of diligent work to not let her get reinforced in that way. But there's another thought I have, like about when somebody ends up in prison or, you know, when we work with somebody and we feel like we've failed because they've ended up in prison. We sometimes, I think, have to get over ourselves as the saviors of the world. And sometimes people make life decisions that they have to make. You know, my daughter made a life decision to go back to her birth mother. That was about the same time, well, shortly after that, my husband got sick and died. I lost my husband and I lost my daughter. It was the worst time in my life. She chose, because her mother basically didn't take care of her, she chose to live out on the street because she didn't want to follow my rules. And I had to tolerate that at that time, because she said to me, I'm 18 and I can do what I want. And I said to her, you're 18 and I can do what I want. You know, it was a very difficult time, but we can't always control every situation. I mean, I think one of the reasons why behavior analysts avoid working with the population that I like to work with is because the consequences of extinction are often, you know, pregnancy, drug use, suicide, um, you know, prison, hospitalization. I mean, but we, we have to do the very best we can. And I think what we have to do is we have to set up structure. Like if, if it's because people are getting something from the hospital that they weren't getting from that residential facility. We have to change what we're doing in that residential facility. You know, people were backing off of him when they were in the hospital. Now, I actually had a therapeutic placement where somebody lived with me when I was single who had bipolar disorder. And she would commit like attempt suicide, superficial cutting, and she loved the excitement of the ambulance and then going to this private psychiatric hospital and getting, you know, food, you know, gifts and visitors. This was before she lived with me. But when she lived with me under the guidance of a therapist, I was not her therapist. I was a residential person. When she went to the hospital, we would the the nurse would call the ambulance and cancel it because this girl would call the ambulance herself, cancel the ambulance. We wouldn't allow any visitors, any flowers at the hospital, you know, the psychiatric hospital. She had to go to the state facility. I mean, we stopped her from getting the reinforcers there and provided more reinforcers in my home. That's what you have to do. It's just like in school, 
you know, we have to change the behavior of the people in school and the way they interact so students don't find being expelled or suspended or sent to the office as more reinforcing than being in the classroom. In my classroom, I made it more reinforcing to be in the classroom. Nobody really wanted to leave. <laughs> I had people out, outside the door who said, how can I get in your class? <laughs> you know, so I think that's part of what we have to do. It's the same principles. See, we have to apply the same principles that we apply to any other kind of problem behaviors. We have to apply those principles, those behavioral principles. And it's something too that I've really just had to keep reminding myself and, and individuals that I work with is like, we're the ones that have the skills. So why am I expecting so much from this individual who doesn't have the skills or exactly. has these other issues? Like the, the concept with Jessica Minahan and thresholds and executive functioning um, has really stuck with me because yeah, some days I can tolerate a lot more, my threshold's a lot higher, but then there's days where every everything's on fire people are dying left and right of me my heart hurts like yeah. i don't have a tolerance anymore and yeah. we learn that through building these relationships with the people we work with and not just that one person but all of their networks because it's this that's beautiful right. woven web of contingencies that's right we have to work you know my training as a school psychologist was great because i would work with bus drivers daycare providers people in the school all of it was coordinated and everybody had to report back to me and everything that happened in my daughter's life was contingent upon what went on in all those other environments. It wasn't just me. It was a whole team. And in that sense, Hillary Clinton was right when she said it takes a village, you know, as long as the village reports back to the primary person. And it's tough because everybody has their own goals and values. And so making sure to have those discussions, have those interviews, build those relationships. Oh, if someone just put, it takes the right village. Yes. Spot on. Yeah. Yes. Um, okay. So another one of the questions that came up was discussing about shallow emotions. So there's shallow emotions that we see with individuals that have experienced trauma and abuse and neglect. Um, but the, from the way that it was, it's described, it can also look similar to like um, autism traits. Yes. It so does. what are your thoughts with that? Like, how do we kind of tease that apart or do we need to even tease it apart? Um, I don't know that we need to tease it apart unless the person with autism, I actually was called in as a consultant on a case of, with a child that had autism, but also had, you know, attachment issues and was also experiencing some of that shallow deficient emotions. Let me tell you about a study that would be re very relevant to this. There, were, um, there was this um, study where they had three groups. They had children with autism, children with conduct disorder, just the generic, and then children with conduct disorder with callous and unemotional traits. And they set something up where the child was talking to an adult and in the background, it sounds like somebody caught their hand in the door and is in terrible pain and they're screaming, oh my gosh, it hurts, it hurts, you know, they're, you know, like really upset. And it's just a, you know, like it's just a confederate. So the um, three groups, which two groups do you think um, were most similar 
the uh, uh, the autistic or no, that's not the question. This is the question. Which group do you think actually went and did something about it? Like said, oh, that person's in, you know, let me go check on that person or went to try to find out what was wrong with that person. Two of the groups did not. One of the groups did. My thought is the autistic group because it follows social rules. Like this is the thing that has to happen after this thing happens. Well, you're actually wrong for this study. The children with autism and the children with callous and unemotional traits did not do anything. But the children with just generic conduct disorder actually were concerned and went to try to find out what was going on. Now, the thing is, the explanation that the um, researcher came up with was that perhaps the children with autism didn't have the skills. They, they might have been agitated, but they didn't know what to do. The children with conduct disorder and callous and unemotional traits, they have the skills. And this is something that I've argued with people about before, because they try to tell me to just do training of the skills. But if you don't have a relationship with somebody, if you don't develop a relationship, they're not going to express genuine emotions. So the kids with the callous and unemotional traits, they have the skills, but they don't care. At least at the moment, they don't care. I mean, they appear like they don't care. They act like they don't care. And it's not a, but it's not a skill deficit, which is why I came up with the theory or the idea that they're negatively reinforced for being numb. And so with children with autism, you teach them the skills. With children in callous and unemotional traits, you have to get them to emotionally feel things. That's what you do. And the way you get somebody to emotionally feel things is you're emotionally available and you, you create an emotional connection and you allow them when they're sad, when something bad happens, you, you're, you're empathetic and you validate. And that, by the way, also works well with kids with autism. They need that empathy and validation too. It's part of what they, they need to learn. But um, you validate. And I remember one time when my daughter was really upset and I was trying to comfort her and she said to me, I hate this. I feel so vulnerable. I just thank my daughter for teaching me so much because she was somebody who was verbal, right? And she could tell me what was going on. So she was able to verbalize the fact that when she was getting empathy from me, she was feeling vulnerable and it was uncomfortable. But remember what I talked about, about the critical period, you have to stay at it. You have to work at it. You have to continue to do it because if you don't, there is no reason for them to use those skills. There's no reason for them to unnumb and, and not escape those emotions. They have to have support. They have to have an emotional connection. So that's where I think the difference is and where I think the treatments are different. That's really cool. Um, do you happen to remember the title of that study or any of the authors on it? Um, not I don't, but I could probably investigate. It was actually somebody I presented with at ABAI, but I'm blocking on his name right now, but I can get that information to you. 
awesome sauce. Yeah. And we'll make sure to, to um, have it on the website and everything. And then if I, I'll throw it out with the resources when I send a follow-up email too. Um, so just saw something that popped in the chat before I lose the other question. I wanted to jump on this one. Um, so the other question we had was the, I guess, uh, the potential of adding a diagnosis of, where is it? Oh, complex developmental trauma and whether, you know, so if that goes in the DSM, um, you know, is that something that could actually be beneficial or is it just another word that we use and we're missing the point? Okay. I think, I think both, it's just like autism. I think it, it makes sense to have a diagnosis of autism and then you increase some awareness and you get resources and you get support and, you know, so I think that that's a start having that diagnosis in the DSM. But I think if we stop there and say, well, they're just doing that because they have, you know, this disorder. See, that's what really upsets me. You know, um, it's that circular reasoning. You know, why are they acting that way? Because they have, you know, that a, a disorder. What is, how did they get labeled with a disorder because of those behaviors? So it's just circular reasoning. So as I think it's good to increase awareness, to help people to get resources and support, but I think it's not good if we stop there and we use that as a reason to explain behavior. That does not explain behavior. Um, the function explains behavior, SDs, establishing operations, learning history, um, all of that is how reinforcement, that's how we explain behavior, not with a diagnosis. Preach. Yes. All of those things. <laughs> um, it was actually one of the, one of my reasons for not wanting to take classes on disabilities or diagnoses because, um, since very arrogant, um, but I didn't want to feel, you know, jaded, quote unquote. Like I didn't want to just go in and say, oh, well, this person has autism. Therefore, these things are all going to happen. But no, it, this is a human who engages in behavior that looks like X, Y, and Z when A, B, and C are present and these consequences occur. And as behavior analysts, I think we have a responsibility to not use a diagnosis as an explanation. We have a responsibility. And let me just put in a plug for Enio Sapani and his diagnostic classification system. Um, he looks at classifying um, behaviors according to their function rather than using these behaviors as symptoms to classify them in the traditional way. And there's much more to be gained when we identify the function of aberrant behavior than when we say, oh, this aberrant behavior, it is associated with this diagnosis. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, you're not giving the human enough credit here, people. Come on. We're pretty complex, regardless of, you know, your vocal verbal abilities or your skill set repertoire. Humans are complex. And you pointed this out at the beginning too. When trauma happens, it changes the brain. And if you guys haven't gone and looked at developmental stages of, you know, quote unquote, neurotypical people, definitely go do some research on that because I think that's really valuable and needed in our, in our, and just in our toolbox to have of like, what do the neurotypical peers look like? 
Um, what have what are what should they be going through at this point? And where do our individuals kind of fall on that spectrum? And then overlaying that with now let's add trauma on top of it and what's going to potentially happen from there. Um, the comment that was in the the chat that I had seen was um, research by Elaine Aaron on highly sensitive person child, and it's hypothesized that up to 20% of the human species is highly sensitive. And then, yeah, you add wow. trauma on top of that, which I don't know, let's just call a spade a spade. And that's what the last two years have been for most people, if not everybody, um, because the world got turned upside down. And so these are all things that we get very focused on. Yes, I want to solve the problems and everything, but we lose sight of the human somewhere in there too. And, you know, it's, it's development. Like I don't want to make robots. I don't want to make little clones of, of myself or anybody else. I want to have humans that are able to express themselves and get their needs met and advocate and have relationships that are healthy and safe. And if we're not creating these safe environments for them, then no learning is going to happen. And so like with your daughter, setting those boundaries and expectations, it's not forever, but it, the environment isn't safe yet. You know, we're, we're not quite under that kind of control yet where I can let you go out and fly on your own little eaglet. You know, we still need to have the boundaries. And then when that skill set develops and we start to see and that trust develops more, then, yeah, we can open those things up. My daughter and I recently did a presentation together called uh, Breaking the Cycle of Abuse in, in Applied Behavior Analysis, How It Helped Break the Cycle of Abuse. And she talked about, from her perspective, what it was like to be parented by me using those <laughs> behavioral techniques. It was really cool. And we were so in sync with each other. That was what was amazing to me. The way I perceived what it was that I was doing with her and why she agreed with me, <laughs> generally, except during adolescence, I was too strict, way too strict. Um, I think if we spare every teenager, I think is going to have that same. And yeah. I was, I was an only child. So I fit into a lot of the we're spoiled. Yeah. Check those boxes off. But I still thought my parents were too strict. You know, I had like mm -hmm. a 10 PM curfew tragedy, mm -hmm. first world problems. Um, all right. So thank you all so much for attending and for hanging in there and, you know, being here on a Friday afternoon. <laughs> great questions and keep up the great work. This is not easy work. It is very, very challenging. And we need more behavior analysts interested in this topic. Um, I'm going to be doing a lot of presentations at ABAI on this topic as well, doing a workshop um, with my co-authors um, on trauma and all the strategies that we use in classrooms as in, you know, as a substitute. So. Oh, wow. Hopefully I'll see you at ABAI. Yeah, I will be there. I'm very excited. So, um, you know, I'll be posting things on the social media about where you can find uh, ATBA running around Abba I most likely with a chicken with my head cut off because there's always too many talks and mm -hmm. inevitably I get the ones that are like, cool. They're all at the same time in opposite ends of the building. So it's great, but yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. Jeannie, I, this, yeah, I'm so happy right now. 
my little heart's just beside itself and I'm going to explode later. Um, but you guys were wonderful. Again, this was a fantastic Friday. I love these live chats. Um, it's wonderful. I'll send out resources later this uh, weekend um, and updates on information. Audio is being recorded. It'll be on the pod in a few weeks. Stay tuned. Um, other things just to kind of wrap up. We just put out our constructional approach episode today as a special release. So if you ever want to learn about nonlinear and that, this is a beautiful extension um, of what Jeannie was talking about today. So Israel Gold Diamond is, uh, is an amazing behavior analyst as well that is now being talked about a lot more, but definitely brought up the discussion of emotions as these contingencies early on as well. So yeah. Um, other than that, I love you all beautiful humans. Be kind to each other. Be nice. And uh, we'll see you later. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this adventure of the Atypical Behavior Analyst. Check out the website atypicalba.com for more episodes, references, and to purchase CEUs. To stay up to date, like and follow us on social media. Just search Atypical Behavior Analyst. If you like the show, please rate and leave us a review. And if you want to support the show but don't need CEUs, you can help by clicking the Buy Us a Coffee link in the show notes. So until next time, listeners, grab your towel, keep exploring, and we'll see you in the fringes. What? You decided to stick around. That's awesome. Well, I suppose we should reinforce your listening behavior, so please enjoy a preview from our next episode. Feeling Alien in Your Own World with Rebecca H. My nickname at that everyone would talk to me behind, talk about me behind my back was schizo, which is a stored version of schizophrenic. And I'm not schizophrenic. I don't have that diagnosis. And I was like, y'all think I'm crazy? Like, I know I'm crazy, but I'm an awesome person. You should get to know me before you judge me. Um, and I, I accept myself now, but it took lots and lots of years of healing and going through that trauma and really it was not my fault. I, I didn't deserve any of it. And now I have a great support system. I'm loved. I, but for years I struggled with low self-esteem because of what everyone else put me through.